what's happening in the canine industry. For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Pat Stewart, joined with my co-host, Glenn Cook, and today we have our second Randy guest of 2018, Mr. Andrew Clark. Do you think he qualifies as a Randy guest? Uh, he's the Randy guest. Mm. Pretty horny. <laughs> <laughs> what a way to start. <laughs> <laughs> They're your first words on the podcast. I'm just, yeah, I'm pretty horny. Well done, Andrew. <laughs> so, Andrew Clark, welcome to the Canine Paradigm. Thanks, guys. What are we talking about today? I have no uh, idea. Well, I think a few good things that we could talk about is Andrew's background. Like most of our guests, I think people would be pretty interested to hear how Andrew got into the dog industry because he's had quite a interesting career, a long career in the dog industry himself, being that he was a prison officer in the dog squad. Also, Andrew was a council officer with Karingai Council. So he's been handling a lot of dog-related issues for many years and has then gone on to privately run his own dangerous dog handling courses that he does for council and also for interested students, a lot of NDTF students, and a lot of people on the Balance Symposium have also gone off to do your course as well. So this would be a good start to the topic. Let's begin at the beginning and talk about where you started in the dog career, what you got you interested and where you, uh, how you arrived to be where you are today. Yeah, guys, look, um, when I was growing up, being a dog handler wasn't a recognised career option in the 70s and 80s. The dog industry was, well, probably limited to a few police dogs and the RAF military dogs. I actually joined the Navy. That was always my lifelong career goal. A few things happened in the Navy. I ended up getting out. I was going to join the Merchant Marines. They weren't recruiting at the time. I needed something to tie me over. I actually joined Corrective Services. Um, it was only going to be a short stop, but I got interested in dogs there. I saw they had the dog unit there and I thought this would be okay. Now, I didn't even have a driver's licence at the time. Um, so how old were you? At the time, I was 27. Mm-hmm. And I, you didn't have a driver's licence. I didn't have a driver's licence. Bloody disgrace. <laughs> what trade were you in the Navy? I was a gunnery sailor in the Navy. Right. And I didn't, well, I was at sea all the time, didn't have to um, yeah. drive. So I joined the Navy before I was old enough to drive. So then I decided, well, I better go out and get a licence. And I got myself really fit and applied for the dog unit and got in. Nice. Where does the training for that happen? At Windsor. Um, all the training happened there. You had to pass an induction day. Um, it was a competitive selection induction. I got through. I then um, had to undertake a 13-week training course where I then went operational. So you joined corrections and then from within corrections applied to applied, go to dogs. Yes, that's correct. Yeah, right. it was only, well, as I said, at that stage, it was just to fill in time until um, A&L were recruiting again. Right. Because so I didn't have any other job at the time. So, yeah. So was your, was your induction specific to the dog unit or were you looking just to be a corrections officer no, at that point in time? No, I was just a prison officer and then, then I got interested in the dogs when I was in there. Right. So within uh, corrections, what percentage of the corrections officers are dog handlers? Very few. There's only 
when I joined the unit, there was 40. Right, okay. The, hmm. What would there be, 10,000? Probably about three or 4,000 officers, I think. Right, okay, and only 40 handlers. So it's pretty difficult to get into and selective little little group. It is. Um, some people didn't want to go into that line, be or things, even though they were interested in dogs because you didn't get the overtime you got in the jails. But, yeah, there's a lot of people that were very interested in um, the dog unit. It is, well, as far as I'm to this day, it's the best thing you can do in corrective services. Right. Is there any extra pay in that? Or No. No, it's no, the same. No. And what are the corrections dogs mostly used for? Drug detection primarily and crowd control. There's the passive alert dogs which came into corrective services in the mid-90s. That was quite a groundbreaking program for the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've had the multi-purpose dogs or the GP dogs since the mid-80s. Right. Okay. And that's for controlling um, Ground, yeah. prisoners. Yeah. And then the detection aspect, that's for sweeping rooms and you check people coming in how yep. does that yep also um screen visitors coming into the jail inside the jail as well um the shepherds do a lot of that sort of work searching cells um and also obviously the presence of having the dogs there for crowd control and security purposes mm-hmm. cool from basically from there um i, I started to well, to the first couple of years i suppose i was finding my feet then i started to look outside corrective services to see what else was there mm-hmm. um I, I met a lot of fabulous people as well um roger mayer i met early in my career I also... Who was a police dog handler? Yeah, Roger was... And he's a bit of an influence in my early um, dog handling. Mm. Um, we all know Big Dog. He's a, yeah. he's a great fella. Mm. Mm. Yeah, um, and, like, I really pushed hard to go to a seminar in 2004, I think it was, with the Army Trackers and War Dogs Association in Amberley. And after a lot of, yeah, um, under-the-table work, um, I got approval to go up to <laughs> Queensland to... and. I think for me that was a big turning point in my as a dog handler, learning that there was other things out there. There was right. other techniques there, and you know, and I got really, and that's where I started going outside corrective services, going to visit police, going to visit customs, quarantine, etc. Um, the military working dogs in the army. I started networking with all these those people. Mm-hmm. And in that time, I think you were instrumental in developing an association yourself. Like there was you and a few other people that uh, the Australian Working Dog Association, was it called? Yeah, Australian Service Dog Association. That basically came from 2004 when um, I was up in Amberley. Bob Bettany and um, Leo Vanderkamp, who were the president and secretary of the um, Army Trackers and War Dogs Association at the time, they sort of said, who's putting their hand up to run our next seminar? And there was just dead silence in the room. <laughs> so me being stupid, I said, yeah, okay. And things basically happened from there. Um, I organised the and coordinated the next year's seminar out at Windsor. We, I think we ended up having 13 dog agencies from around the country attend. That's a good show. Yeah, mm. we, we had the minister turn up. I got a commissioner's commendation for Murphits and everything. So, yeah. Nice. Oh, for about 18 months, I was a white-haired boy until I got put on the shit list again. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's gutsy move. So you were at your first seminar and at that one you agreed to host the next one. It's a gutsy move. And basically from that Windsor one, that was formed the Australian Service Dog Association because the Army Trackers and War Dogs Association said we shouldn't be doing this. Yeah. We're just an old group of retired people, should be current people within the industry. And yeah, and that's basically how it was formed. So prior to you forming that group, there there would have been no service dog trials? That There was no service dog trials per se there used to be the old um, police and services canine association that ran till the mid 90s but they did biathlon type things fun things with agility type things with your dogs Mm -hmm. there wasn't work related detection protection work actually in those trials that came we had a couple of seminars which were very successful the first actual service dog trials came in 2008 which we hosted which were at 
Corrective Services Brush Farm Academy and also at the Million Paws Walk at Homebush. Right. It was in conjunction there. That was quite very successful. But just, just explain, what, what is the service dog trials for people? Okay, the, the service dog trials basically was in the disciplines. Everything was people competing in the disciplines the dogs were trained for. So there's a man work, tracking, detection work, etc. All right, so it was all in the disciplines the dogs were trained. What were their rules for entering? You had to be police, military? Yeah, police or military, yeah. Right. And, yeah, and basically the discipline you're in um, of your dog is what you competed in. And, yeah, a lot of teething problems, mm-hmm. but it went on from there. Yeah, awesome. And so you're in corrections. You did that for how many years were you there? Twelve years. Okay, um, so the, your little between jobs, looking for something to do, <laughs> went for twelve, 12 years. Twelve years, yeah. And then look, I sort of outgrew corrective services. I won't go into the reasons and why for us here, but I started looking around. I didn't want to jump straight into private enterprise because I reckon I would have fallen flat on my face. Mm-hmm. And I saw a job going for an animal management coordinator at Karingai Council and I applied for that and got that job. Just going back to the association for a little second there, Andrew, how long, is that still in effect? Like is it still running or is it sort Not of? Not really. Look, basically the last event we did was in 2013. I Someone else really needed to put the hand up that was still serving. I think once you're out of the law enforcement military circles, I think the trust thing's gone a bit and they're suspicious of civilians running these things. Mm-hmm. So someone else within the services really needed to put their hand up and take over. No one really did. I know a lot of times so, with these events that if the right type of person's not running them, then they tend to flounder because without somebody proactively putting in a lot of their own time, they tend to go by the wayside. I haven't heard anything of it since uh, no. you were actively involved in it. It'd be nice to see that the agencies were getting back behind something like that again. So is there a service dog trials running now or there's nothing? Look, the police were doing one just for them. They had an Australasian police one. I think that was in 2013 as well. Right. Um, I don't think there's been much since. Yeah, look, it's strange. If you've got the motivated people within the services, yeah, these things get off the ground. But if you don't, yeah, they're pretty hit and miss. Hit and miss. There you go, Denchi. There's an opening for you. There's definitely <laughs> something going on. There is something because they went to New Zealand recently for something. So there's something similar. Yeah, the police, yeah. I think that's um, related just to police, whereas we were everybody sort right, of thing. Right, okay. And, yeah. Which it's good to get everyone together because you never know what you don't know, right? Like someone else might be doing something cool mm. and you don't get to see it. Oh, 100%. Look, as I said, my learning curve went from basically plateauing mm-hmm. to sky going skyrocketing when I started going out and training with other agencies. It was just fantastic. Yeah, yeah. I think it's brilliant for the agencies, as Pat mentioned. I think that any time that you're all getting together and sharing invaluable information, it only aids to make your organisations better. Oh, 100%. The quality of the dogs, the standard of the dogs, type of dogs you're using, mm. relevant information, because that changes constantly mm. as we're all aware. It's an example, sorry, just outside of dogs, but I always think about it. There's a company that make like military equipment and they were bought out, Leica is the company, and they were bought out by a aerospace company and they use these gyros and they, when the aerospace company turned up, they said, oh, you use a, a rotating gyro, like you idiots. In space, we don't have room for a rotating gyro and they brought in the vibrating gyro that was like secret aerospace technology and completely changed the way Leica do everything and made them the biggest company ever. So it's one of those... It's an example outside of dogs, but it's one of those things where you just have no idea that even exists. Because you only it's, know what you know. Yeah, it's outside mm. your stream. And then someone, you, when you work with a different stream, you go, wow, I didn't even know, literally didn't know that was a possible thing. And now I'm using it every day. Pretty much that could be said for clicker training. I mean, many of us would have, and we did, we poo-pooed clicker training many years ago. We looked at it like it was a uh, things that sissies did. 
girls and sissies use clickers and stupid us were sort of shunning <laughs> our noses to it and saying, I'll, I'll never use a clicker. Um, <laughs> I remember them embarrassingly because we were at that point in time, but it wasn't until we started going to seminars and started networking with people that we saw the power of marking dogs in training and then mm-hmm. thought what a mistake that was that we didn't. When was that? What sort of time frame was that? I would say that was into the late 90s where that started to happen. We started to see Karen Pryor's influence coming into the clicker training. Uh, well, she wrote the book Don't Shoot the Dog. She started uh, introducing that criteria into training that you should be marking uh, dogs more readily in, in your active work. And we were looking at it going, oh, this is nonsense. It's a gimmick. It'll never last. And um, <laughs> I remember reading something on Lieberg's site where Ed Frawley was saying the same thing, exactly the same words what a stupid device this was, but it was just the old guard and we only knew what we knew. It's cognitive dissonance. You hang on to things that you're actively involved with at the time, refusing to change until you can see the benefits of it. And when we did, we thought, well, that was pretty silly. Yeah, and if only we were doing this all along. Yeah. Yeah, well, We kind of were, but we didn't realise what we were doing. Right. So I think the fact that we were saying yes was we were still qualifying as marking our dogs Mm. and that for us felt better than using something that looked like a toy in training. Feeding dogs and using toys and all those sort of things were kind of frowned upon Mm -hmm. whereas now you look at it and go, why aren't you doing that? Even some of the hardest trainers that I've met in my career as a trainer, a lot of these people are now looking back at these devices. So similar to what you're talking about with the aerospace company. So, Andrew, when you were at Corrections, was when you started in the dogs there, was were they training with food at all? No food at all. And to this day, I don't think they use food. Obviously, well, look, I can't comment on, on current right now, training yeah. processes, but it was very compulsion-based. Right. Uh, even though they said it was positive reinforcement they were using, it was probably... 75% compulsion. Right, okay. And uh, 25% um, reinforcement. Right. So, yeah, just getting back to that, we can all learn. I think one of the biggest learning jumps I took is I invited the Fire Brigade Accelerant Detection Dog Handler to one of our training days. Mm-hmm. Now, he was the only one, only one in the country. And he was, a couple of years earlier, he took over the role of the handling position and was given a book and a week's handover with the new dog. <laughs> and, and told, off you go. It, welcome to your job. You're already yeah. three weeks behind. That's right. And basically he, he, was, he thought of himself as the minnow in the industry and everything. But And so I invited him to a training day and I sort of started thinking, we're going to show Phil a few things here. And I tell you what, he laid a one drop of petrol or one part per million of petrol on a hinge and let it sit there for an hour. Then we came back and this is on the hinge of a cell door. He sent the dog. I have never seen a dog work a scent cone so well Yeah, and just sat and put its paw right where the pin drop of petrol was. Yeah. And now Phil's the leading authority oh, in accelerant training. That's when I said to Phil, teach me everything you know. Yeah, I right. just thought, mm. how good was this dog? And does he, he just got a knack for it or where I, did it come from for him? Look, I think he's an intellect as well as he, he wants to know why. And he, look, he's just made accelerant detection his own. I learned so much. My second dog... When I trained my second dog, working dog, I basically trained it as per he trained his accelerant dogs. Mm-hmm. The best detection dog I've ever seen was an accelerant detection dog. Same thing in the States. Uh, it's actually a pretty funny story. They have a competition. It was in an elementary school and they put a, whatever their odour was. I think it's, it's severely watered down petrol or whatever. And they put a, a drop of it somewhere in the carpet of the school and the dogs had to find it. 
And this one dog, if you'd imagine a classic American sort of elementary school goes in the door and open to a big staircase that goes up like you see in movies, right? It was to the left as it went up, but the stairs went to the right. And so the dog followed the scent cone straight up the stairs and actually slammed into a wall because it was following its nose because the scent was falling down the stairs and it went the wrong way. And yeah, anyway, figured it out and indicated perfectly on it. I said to the, the handler, I said, mate, that's the best I've ever seen. He goes, yeah, I hear it all the time. He actually he, <laughs> he actually told me that um, they were doing a similar sort of thing, a big joint training thing, and were, one of the Navy SEALs saw him working his dog and actually picked up his dog and said, I regret to inform you that this dog is now uh, uh, belongs to the Department of Defense. And he said, well, what do you want with the accelerant detection dog? And they said, ah, damn, we thought it was a bomb dog. And they were just going to take him. <laughs> so anyway. But yeah, so when you're in corrections, how many, how many dogs did you have? I had two. two. Um, oh, well, one, one, only one at a time. And yeah, 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 yeah. But two through your career. Yes, yeah. Mm. Um, big differences between the dogs? Was that a big learning 100, curve? 100%. Um, look, I brought the own – my first dog was a showline shepherd, big uh, – um, well, his first 16 months of life, he was basically a failed show dog. Right. Um, <laughs> back in the day, you know, they got dogs from wherever they could, but yep. they got this failed show dog as a um, protection dog. Basically – for the look, I won't go into the training methods. At the end of it all, I had a fantastic crowd control dog. Right, detection work. <laughs> Statistically, he had a he had lots of fines. In actual fact, he had three for his entire career. <laughs> <laughs> okay, he got totally look. He's a big forty-one kilo dog. Um, you put him in if he had to search more than three or four cells. He got over it. He was sort of like bugger this and started wanting to rip pillows up and things like that. And <laughs> out in an open field, fabulous because he could circulate. But, you know, that core sort of role of searching cells, he was just no way. But one of the bravest, most courageous dogs I've ever had. So yeah. were you doing any crowd control with your dogs as well or just yeah. mainly in, in detection work? No, no, they were yeah, security. That was his mother. Well, well, God, he was a hopeless um, drug dog. So, yeah, no, he's all crowd control. Right. Yeah, protection work. Mm. And he was bloody good at that, fortunately. Yeah, right. Um, For a showline dog. Yeah. Oh, yeah, no, fantastic dog. Yeah. What was his name? Wizard. Oh, that's Wizard. Mm, yeah. That's Wizard, yeah. Yeah, yeah I remember you talking to me mm. about Wizard quite a few times. Mm. Yeah. Terrible so how did, name for yeah. <laughs> did it, it came with that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Right. No, Andrew called him. Yeah, that. Andrew. Yeah, yeah. I've been waiting my whole life to name a dog wizard. wizard. <laughs> <laughs> no, that this was, is the one. <laughs> but, my, yeah, my, my second dog, obviously, it, it was the first, I, I begged and pleaded. Um, <laughs> I'd seen the working line dogs and the, the shepherds, and I'm thinking, I want a good drug and protection dog. Yeah. Um, it was actually Roger Mayer. I sprung up Roger Mayer and I said, where am I going to get myself a good working line shepherd? And police had just reneged on a deal with Jack Lotsky. Um, they were going to take his litter and they reneged on it. Roger said, go here. He's got dogs and he'll probably sell them, sell you a couple cheap. And I've gone beauty. And that's basically how the first working line shepherds came into the unit. All right. So they um, said to I Andrew, um, and he, welcome, Andrew, here's your second dog, but you're not naming it. <laughs> <laughs> this one has to be Harry Potter. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you got to raise that dog from a puppy. Yes. Because the other you got it at 14 months. and Yeah. 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 This one um, I got at eight weeks. And, yeah, I got another one as well for another handle. They, I actually, they splashed out um, and got two. Yeah, but only because they're a reduced rate. They right. wouldn't have paid the four yeah, rate. it was two for the price of yeah, one. Yeah, it was two for the price of one. And I think once they saw that, you know, the difference, you know, the, the actual drive and, you know, yeah. having shepherds in the unit that were actually good drug dogs, mm-hmm. it did change a few things. Like they still didn't want to pay money, but they wanted the working line shepherds after that. Yeah, classic government. Yeah. <laughs> 
And so that dog, what was his name? Viper. Viper. Oh, that's a better name. That's a much him. better name. <laughs> that's yep. better. Yeah, it's it's a bit different when you're in a cell and they say, "Oh, wizard's coming in to get you," as opposed to <laughs> "viper's coming." Come out, or we'll send in the wizard. <laughs> <laughs> send him. It's going to turn you into a frog. <laughs> so, viper, you trained completely. Yeah. Big challenges in that, in that it was a totally different dog, and you um, had one dog for so long. No, he was easy compared to wizard. Absolutely, because right. he was just love to work. Yeah, love to work. It was no. Yeah, he was. Be never disappointed when you took him out on a training run. So it was a company time that you got to train him on, or well, a lot of your own time, though. As you know, you don't just. You know. Oh, so he came home and lived with you. He wasn't. Oh yeah, he wasn't uh, a working dog. That they, no, no, he was department's dog. But yep. um, but he comes home to oh, live yeah, with the yeah. handlers. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Perfect. Is that how it goes with all the correction yep. dogs? They, they yep. go home with go the handlers. Home with handlers. Yeah. Yeah, right. Mm. Yeah, because sometimes they actually have puppy raisers that raise the puppy for them, then they yeah. give them to you at a juvenile age and then the training generally starts yes. from there. So that's actually encouraging to hear that you got to manage and, and run him from an eight-week-old puppy. Most and operational handlers did, um, unless for whatever reason they didn't want to raise the puppy or whatever, but most operational handlers read that onto their second, third dogs or whatever they would rear them from a pup. Mm. So the only issue then is there's an uh, overlap period, right? So you would have had Viper and Wizard yeah. for a period at the same time? I retired Wizard the day Viper went operational. Yeah. He was, his legs were going and you had a short now muscular disease that was shortening the muscles. He couldn't really jump. When, yeah. Right, How old okay. was he when he, you retired him? Uh, seven and a half, eight. Mm. Right, okay. Well, that's pretty good working life still, for mm. especially for a show line shepherd yeah. oh, working yeah. in the cells. Mm. Mm. All right, so then you leave corrections – and you went to what council did you work for? Karingai Council I went to. Um, look, that turned out to be a very good move because I got to know people within the industry there mm-hmm. and I started running, you know, sideline um, training. Mm-hmm. So that sort of eased me into things. I don't know, you guys have never worked with council, have you? No, I haven't, never. <laughs> Working with local government is... Interesting. Interesting, yeah, that's mm-hmm. a good word, is interesting. Like I was responsible for running all their investigations for dog attacks and things like that, doing all the training. One thing I noticed, though, when I went, I thought rangers were all professional dog handlers. You know, they're really skilled in the art of catching dogs mm-hmm. and dealing with aggression in dogs. I couldn't have been, it couldn't have been further from the truth. Um, I, basically, the safety equipment they had was a pole right. and they didn't even know when they were going to use that pole. Um, I was only there, it was only my second day there when I went out with a ranger to apprehend a dog and they're running around chasing a dog with a pole. It wasn't aggressive. And it's sort of like, what the hell are you doing? Right. So all of a sudden, that's where it, the penny just drops straight away. There's a call for training in this type of training in yep. the industry. Um, not just how to avoid dog attack, but how to apprehend properly. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that's where I started, um, yeah, from there thinking, okay, how am I going to make this work? Well, that's good because it follows on that saying, see a need, fill a need. Yeah, that's mm. exactly right. And then I, I think I stayed there 18 months, two years as an employee. Then I saw the opportunity to buy a premises at Monavale, which had the half a dozen dog wash bays. It was being run primarily as a pet store that had a small grooming daycare type thing. I thought, no, no, I'm going to make this into a training centre, keep the dog wash bays and, yeah, I bought that. So that was Total Dog. That's um, Total Dog, yeah. Yeah. And h- how long did you operate that for? Um, I was there for five or six, five years, I think, five years. Right. And Total Dog was like daycare, dog wash bay yeah. that was like and, a self-service yeah, thing. And training and, and training. grooming, yeah. So, yeah. Well, it started off as just training. Like I was going to do a 
the dogs that I was working with were going to be in daycare sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But I had such a big call that people wanted to leave their dogs there. It became probably the biggest part of the business. Right. So, yeah. But you were then doing like a, a drop-off style board and train yeah. with the dogs through the day. Yes, yeah, that's right. Yeah. How do you find that as a model? Do you think that was? I think that's the best model. I still do that today from home. Yeah. I think that is because you do short, sharp sessions throughout the day. If you've got working three dogs, like I am, well, not today, but tomorrow I'll be working three dogs. Mm-hmm. You just get them out for five minutes, put them away, get them out for five minutes. And I, I find it's a very good, well, a lot, obviously a lot better than a one-hour session or a two-hour session. Yeah, yeah. No, I 100% agree. I think that's yeah. the way to go because, I mean, the way I do it just through necessity usually is you go to the people and then you're on the clock for an hour so you want to train for an hour but that's not the best way to train a dog. Yeah, the training should never be managed over a time frame. It should be based on results of the dog. Yeah, 100%. The old way that we used to do it was it had to be a certain amount of time. So if you train one dog for 20 minutes, you had to train the other dog for 20 minutes Mm. and that was primarily a set function. This is the old model that we used to train dogs in earlier on but now we've pretty much discovered that it's like that saying uh, one person's trash is another person's treasure. It's the same thing with uh, animal behaviour. You bring one dog out, it'll last five minutes. Five minutes is perfectly fine for that dog. And the dog's basically saying, I'm done. Five minutes, I'm done. I understand. Another dog, 45 minutes, happy. It'll go two, three hours, quite happy to work through it. Randy would be happy to work until you killed him. Opie, five minutes. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, and every dog's different. Every That's dog's different. I usually try and explain to people, like, this session is for you. It's probably we're, yeah. we're getting a negative effect on the dog. This is just so that you can learn what we're doing and then you imply it to the dog throughout the week or whatever. Yep. Um, but if you're actually doing the training, yeah, I think that drop-off is the, yeah. the way to go. Oh, look, some jobs, obviously, as you know, have to be done in the house. Like if a dog's got a fence line barking issue, that yeah. can't be addressed anywhere else but the house. So yeah. those sorts of things, obviously, I still do a lot of ha- home consults. But if it's anything basic obedience and even aggression issues, depending on the issue, I prefer to take the dog myself. Mm-hmm. Let's go jump back in time again, back to your council days. What was the number one complaint that you were attending to as a council officer? Oh, Barking dogs, definitely. Yep. 300, over over 300 a year. Right. Wow. Just wow. in Karingai. Just in Karingai, yeah. Mm. So a complaint comes in, obviously neighbour complains that they've got a barking dog in the area. What's the process? What do you then have to do? Well, look, all councils have their own um, internal procedures. Like in law, all it says is a person can't let their dog bark in a way that's going to um, unreasonably affect the amenity of any neighbour in any other property. So that's a very wide scope there. Generally, if I got a barking dog complaint, I would want to know, I wouldn't accept the dog barks all the time because we know dogs don't bark all the time. Be more specific so I can go to the owner and say, your dog is barking between these times or at this. So I'd want as much information as possible from the complainant. When is the dog barking? Do you know the trigger? How long does a dog bark for? If they could give me that information, I'd take it further. Mm. If they couldn't, then it's sort of like, no, I'm not going to accept barking all the time. So I know the dog doesn't bark all the time. If they say for extended periods during the day, that's fine because um, then I can go and listen. I mean, yeah, that's 100% right. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, and then I'd go to the owner. I'd say, all right, we've had a complaint. This is happening. And you'd give them time to address it. Usually two or three weeks. Do what- you give a advice on how to address it? or As a council officer, look... <sighs> I was very reluctant to give advice because if it didn't work, they'd say, well, I've done everything you've told me and it's yeah. still... Ha-. So that could be provided generic notes and things, but it was generic. Mm-hmm. Okay, you know, block the dog's line of sight from the street and things like that. I was very, very careful not to give hard and fast advice. It was all generic. Yeah. And if I needed to, 
you'd prefer him to give, say, his three or four trainers pick one. Yeah, I guess that's one of the unfortunate things with modern society is that anything that you do or say can be held against you. And that's primarily where folk, people are focused on with community these days. It's not like back when we were kids where if you gave advice, people would appreciate it. And fundamentally, that's why I'm going to say it, that a lot of government agencies council in particular, have a terrible bedside manner on how they deal with people. And it is a very impersonal and terrifying thing when you've got a council ranger turning up on your door to talk to you about a dog-related problem because some of them can be quite intimidating. I've had to go to court against councils a lot in Victoria and the cases that we've gone against, we've won primarily because they're not doing their due diligence properly. And the advice they're giving to people is very matter-of-fact you know, this happened, whereas there's, as you know, Andrew, in law, there's a lot of grey area. Yes, definitely. Look, barking, as I said, barking dogs is one of the worst. Look, you don't need to put a nuisance order on a person. That can't be challenged. But any breaches of that nuisance order, you've got to be able to, you have the same burden to prove as any other criminal matter. Yep. Okay. And that's where the complainants, when they have to actually put their name to, and actually make a statement and be and that statement be challenged in court, a lot of them are sort of going, oh, no, I don't want to do that anymore. So explain that for a second. So you get complaints of barking, you check it out. It's yeah. legit. The dog- if it's legit, then and the, the owners haven't been able to take uh, measures to, or they don't, either don't want to or they can't, mm-hmm. you've got no other option. You've got to put the order on. And so what is that? It, it, it's like- just a nuisance order and it, um, it would state that they must stop the dog from barking in any way that it affects the amenity of any other neighbour. Right, and it's like a written guidance, right, that you deliver, yeah, they it's sign. A, well, it's an order. No, it's an order. You, you're serving them an order, a right. nuisance order. And they must stop then. They've had their warning. It yep. hasn't worked. They get this. If the dog continues to bark. If the dog continues to bark and you get another complaint, then the first thing you'd be doing is sign. And it's like any other criminal matter. Then then you've got to gather the evidence and you can either infringe, prosecute, lower, lower, mm. or give a warning. Right. Like and any other matter. And what would be the average, in your council, I know every council is different, but what say someone did have a dog that barked, they didn't do anything about it, they breached their order, what would happen from there? Look, um, I, well, I've... <laughs> I know every case is different, every, but in look, general. Actually, I, very few people I actually infringed. But by the time you got to that matter, that point, most people have taken action right. one way or another. So probably only, I reckon I would have only ever written infringements for half a dozen barking dogs. Right, and infringements like a fine. A fine, yeah. And how much was that fine? Uh, oh God, to go two penalty units, $240. Okay. $220, sorry, $220. Right, okay. So, and you can get multiple of those, right? Say if they just go, you know, I'll I'll pay the fine, then what? You can prosecute. Right. I actually did prosecute one for that as well, but that's another story. (laughs) Oh, they just refused to take action, so... I, I put a prevent. Well, that was actually not for a nuisance order. I put a prevention now because I had multiple dogs with a nuisance order. You have to um, establish which dog is barking. If there's multiple dogs, very very hard to establish which mm-hmm. dog is barking. So if you do a um, prevention no- notice, which is under the Environmental Protection Act, um, which basically is a blanket, you've got to stop the noise coming. Doesn't matter which dog. It's a lot easier when there's multiple dogs. Right. I, I know you would be a very reasonable person to deal with. I just know the nature of who you are as a person and I know that you would do what you needed to do in order to help people out a little bit. It's just the type of guy you are. And I know somebody else who was quite like that was Mel Isaacs as well. She was very reasonable as a council officer in helping people with dog-related matters. She did everything she could possibly do. So herein lies the problem for people and for people who are listening. If 
people from local council are coming around to talk to you about a dog-related issue, work with them, uh, especially if they're being a reasonable person like Andrew or many of the other people that are pretty good people that come around there. Work with them and try and meet them halfway or even three-quarters of the way with a lot of things they're talking about because there are some real shits of people out there <laughs> who they just get a bug in their ass As soon as somebody comes around there, they just want to dig their heels in, do nothing about it and take no responsibility for the problem that they are creating. Sometimes you can be the victim of just a neighbour who is a pain in the ass themselves. There's been plenty of times where I've seen that evident when people have come to me and spoken to me about dog-related issues and they've said to me, look, there's an old person down the road that's just very intolerant. I can't seem to get through them. None of the other neighbours that live anywhere near me, the people on the left and right-hand side and over the road, none of them have a problem but the person who lives five blocks down the road, the minute the dog makes one bark, they're on me like a, a fly on a turd. So one of the things you've got to have a little bit of a think about in this sort of situation is that sometimes these people are actually coming around to help you out. Yeah, look, look, there's other avenues as well. If I think a complaint is vexatious straight away, you know, after you've had a look and you think, no, this isn't happening, that's why I want to know all the information beforehand Mm -hmm. so you can actually properly investigate it. Yeah. Once you realise this isn't an issue... Then you give the the original complainant, you give them a letter basically saying, if you want to take this further, do it through the courts. Get a noise abatement order. Yep. You know, which they wouldn't get anyway. So Yeah, right. Or go to community justice. Because there'd be a burden of proof along with that as well, right? There's no burden of proof to put on a nuisance order. It's just in the authorised officer's opinion. So, but if you said to them there's no problem here for them to take action through oh, the yeah. courts. If they- I said, uh, and the, the councils are under no obligation to investigate either. If you think it's vexatious, then you just say, oh, you just say, look. Just beat it, dickhead. Yeah. If you want to, you can um, go to the community justice centre for a mediation or you can get, get a noise abatement order through the courts. Mm-hmm. So that's with barking dogs. Did you have to deal with like dangerous dogs, dog yes. attacks very much? Yep. yep. Uh, we had probably had about 80 dog attacks a year because I, I later worked as a consultant with Karingai for about 12 months as well because right. I couldn't get anyone to fill my position. So I went back part-time as a consultant. So. How many of those were serious, Andrew? <sighs> Look, most were dogs just running up and um, yapping. So more of rushing and yeah, charging. Yeah, rushing, charging, minimal, in, or dog-on-dog fights. Serious attacks on people, probably one or two a year, maybe. Or, yeah. All right. And what's the process usually then? Oh, well, that, that is a criminal matter, obviously, a dog attack. So yep. in the first instance, you're getting the all your information from state um, statements from the victim and any other witnesses. If you've got enough evidence there, then straight away I'd be putting on. I'd be going to speak to the owner. If it was a severe attack, which I have had a couple of of in on people, they'd be. I'd be taking a notice of intention to declare the dog dangerous mm-hmm. with me. The only reason for that is that puts restrictions on the dog. So right. while you're investigating it, that dog isn't going to be running around roaming the street. It's got to be muzzled and things. You may not put the. It may be found to be all crap or whatever, not as severe as you originally thought, but that can be dropped. Right. Um, I, I'd get the notice of intent, anything serious, I'd get the notice of intention on pretty quickly. And and once a dog, is it different council to council with the, like, labelling a dog dangerous? Like, once it's labelled dangerous and you get those restrictions, can it be, un, that can be undone at some stage or? After 12 months. Right. So oh, the, well, no, a dangerous dog order can be appealed. A menacing dog order can't be appealed, period. Um, you can apply to council to have it um, revoked after 12 months, a dangerous dog order can be um, appealed in the courts. Right. 
and that dangerous dog order, can it be revoked just after 12 months yes, or do it can. you have to go through courts? No, no, it can be revoked after 12 months. And what's the process for that look like? Each council have their own internal processes. They should have a, um, a policy. Not, I haven't yet to come across one that does, but they're meant to have a policy for revocation of dangerous dog and menacing dog orders. And they're meant to also tell the dog owner what they actually require from them before they'll revoke the order. Right. So, and a lot of councils just say, go get training. Right. But they they're not specific with it, which makes it very hard. Yeah. So my dog gets a dangerous dog order. I come back and I say, he, he, look how good his obedience is. Is not that, good enough. That's no. not good no. enough, right? Well, it wouldn't be for me because, but if when I was in the position, if someone said, what do you want from me? I'd give them a list. I want to not only right. just pass a temperament assessment, I want to see, see over that last 12 months, you've taken real measures to uh, modify the behaviour of the dog. Mm-hmm. And who would conduct that te- temperament assessment? Like, does council employ contractors to do that or the rangers do Look, that? Look, I have, as, a, as in private enterprise, I have conducted temperament assessments for council. Generally, though, the cost is borne by the owner of the dog. Right, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm. That's fair enough, I suppose. Mm. Yeah. And so it can be lifted. Here's, here's a, a squirrely one. So if you're walking down the street with your dog on leash and a cat that is someone's pet cat gets in the way of your dog and your dog kills that cat, is that enough to be then labelled a dangerous dog? Yes. It's definitely a dog attacking law. And even though it's predation, not aggression, etc., you can argue that to the hilt. But in law, the definition of a dangerous dog is any dog that is attacked, pursuant to Section 16 of the Act. So that alone would make, even though it is not actual aggression, um, it is predation, but in law... It says that is a dog attack. All right. And then... And it is, then if, hence that being a dog attack, it can be made a dangerous dog. Yeah, because there was a guy I knew many years ago that had exactly that mm. happen to him with his husky. And then to get that removed, you would then have to prove that the dog was stable around cats now. Not necessarily. I, look, I, I would say you've, you're a better manager of the dog because that, that's a, that, that is a pretty hard task, as you know, depending on the dog. Yeah. That it could be a very, very hard task. I'd more want to know that, that the owner's got good control of that dog because predation, it's not a learnt behaviour, so that will never, ever become extinct. Mm-hmm. Um, even though you can do a lot of training to make it aversive, make it aversive that's never going to be truly extinct. And I wouldn't be asking the average dog owner to do that. I'd be asking the average dog owner to have to good control of their dog. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a weird way. It's just a really specific mm-hmm. case. The guy, I wasn't there, it was years ago, but he said that he did have good control. The dog was on leash right next to him, but if the cat jumps out in front of the yeah. dog, he's like, what am I meant to do? Anyway, it's a squirrely case. Yeah, oh, look, I, I just had one with a client where the dog did kill the cat. No, did, but they put the menacing dog, they didn't want the order to be challenged, obviously, the council. They didn't put a dangerous dog order on the dog. They put a menacing dog order on mm-hmm. and they, they put down as the reason excessive aggression. Right. not because of an attack. So I went into bat for the owners over this. I said, well, this isn't an attack. Um, this isn't aggression. It's predation. Totally different. I lost. <laughs> they still put it on, but their argument was sound. They'd put it on for the wrong thing. Right. But as I said, when, when it can't be challenged in court, law unto themselves and, yeah. Yeah. So that submission would just been like a written submission to the yeah. council. Mm. No, I went through. Like, it was a wait. Look, obviously the client's paying for it, but. Yeah, I went through everything in about four or four or five pages um, yeah, saying yeah. why it wasn't aggression, but yeah. Still it didn't. is kind of one of those squirrely things though. We often look at it like in that sort of situation, the cat was out, the dog grabbed the cat. However, any situation where I've been dealing with these sort of same things myself and I've been talking to clients both sides of the fence, 
I was involved where a dog killed a rabbit and people, you know, the people with the dog going, oh, what's the problem? It's a stupid rabbit. We'll just buy another one. However, as we know, love is love. When you love an animal, yeah. you know, it would be like somebody's dog killing your dog. It's the same sort of thing. We look at it as it's a rabbit. To the child, it's like this is my beloved pet. If you love something, you can't help feeling that remorse and that loss for it. So people do suffer when their cats and rabbits and guinea pigs get mauled by the neighbour dog. We look at it as if it's just a little animal that we can go to a pet shop and replace, but it's an identity to them. And that is the issue that we're often faced with. I was unattached to that type of thing at the start because Mm. I would have been one of those people who thought that same exact thing until I saw the effect that it actually has on people. So I get it in those situations, but the the type of thing that Pat's talking about, there is a loose cat out in the road and it comes darting across and literally falls into the mouth of your dog. It, it's a situation of you've got a loose cat running around the neighbourhood. Different thing if your dog breaks through the leash and runs through their property and nails it in their front yard. I mean, most of my dogs have been fine with cats and never pursued them. So for me personally, it's not an issue. But for the average Joe who's never been put in that situation and all of a sudden loose cat, bang, situations happen and they've got it, yeah, then you've got a tricky situation. And it's not only a bad one for the people who've lost the cat, it's also a terrible for that have been involved in the whole dog-related issue because now they're faced with a council injunction coming down on them and the legal ramifications and also having to deal with their neighbours as well. Mm. Yeah, it's a shit situation. It is a shit situation all around. It definitely, it's something that I think about a little bit because I'd know this guy and he was heartbroken because he got a dangerous dog order on his dog and, you know, he didn't want to keep a dog like that. He ended up giving the dog away and basically to another state because he was like, I'm not prepared to keep this dog in that conditions when there's, the dog is, it was actually really friendly, social, happy dog. And And most of them are. Yeah, exactly. There've been very, very rare cases where I've gone around to help prepare a case for a client where I've gone around there and the dog has been truly dangerous. Mm. There's been only one time in my entire career of going around there where a person's dog, where I turned up and I said to him, the best thing that you can do is euthanize this Mm. dog. And they were mortified. And I sat with them and explained it. I didn't just walk in and drop that bomb on them straight away. And I said, there's no amount of training that's going to fix this problem. I said, this dog is truly dangerous. Mm. I said, it's probably one of the very few that I've given this recommendation to, but the dog is truly dangerous. And you're going to find yourself in a lot of hot water. I said, I can't defend you. There's no way. So mm. there's no court on this land. I, I said, we'll be laughed out of there. And I said, uh, you're going to be up for hundreds of thousands of dollars in, in defence mm. to try and get this dog saved. And did they? They put the dog down. Right, okay. And so, Andrew, when a dog does get a dangerous dog order, what does that look like? What is that? Are they changeable? Like are they pick and pluck like your dog has these restrictions or dangerous dog restrictions is this is no, what it the is? the only one that can – well, dangerous dog is, is what it is. Now, if you want modification to that, you can take it to court mm-hmm. and the magistrate can do what's called either a consent order or a court order in lieu of the dangerous dog order. Right. Okay. Now, that was very common and I used it a lot to my advantage as well. Um, providing the owners of the dog played the game right from the start, I would agree to a consent order which might relax the enclosure requirements. This was before menacing dog legislation came in. I don't think control orders and consent orders are as big a thing these days since menacing dog legislation has come in. Right. So if you have a dangerous dog order, your dog can never be off leash, is that correct? Never off leash, always muzzled in public and if not in the direct supervision of the owner, must be contained within the enclosure. 
Right, okay. And the enclosure is with a roof. Roof. Um, it's got to be approved. Yeah, it's got to be have a uh, metal, uh, sorry, a concrete floor, metal grills all around. Escape proof. Um, yeah, it's basically. Can't dig out, can't break yeah. out. Yeah, yeah metal proof. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, a, it's basically, it, you're constructing a cell for the dog in the backyard. Yeah, that's yeah. What, yeah. That, that's what a dangerous dog restriction cage looks like. It's a prison cell for the dog. Mm-hmm. The, I think the, I think what gets a lot of people is like, cause a lot of people keep their dogs in kennels, no biggie, right? And, there's lots of I've no heaps of people. This dog never comes it's off the lead. stigma. Well, and the muzzle. The muzzle is a killer. Mm. We're, we're in a muzzle in public all the time. I think is what puts a lot of people off. Uh, well, I mean, is the biggest kick in the nuts over that dangerous dog order, especially if the dog is has the order for something like killing a cat. Yeah, that's you know. Yeah. For me, it wasn't the muzzle. It was the the identifying collar. And the stigma of being, oh, there's a collar. There's a collar. Yeah, yeah it's a oh. it's a red but, and yellow collar. Most people don't know what that is. Yeah, <laughs> that right. Is. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, I've never seen it. Yeah, yeah most people. Yeah, don't you know. you are. But I guess labeled, you don't see that many dogs out yeah, with it. You're labelled as a dangerous dog, clearly to be identified on the street as a dangerous dog. So, it's the whole. People don't like stigmas. They don't no, like. No. It's like being labelled a. I don't know anything really. Anything. Choose your words carefully. Yeah, I know. I just, <laughs> there was a, like a whole list of things, things you shouldn't say. Yeah, <laughs> and you've also got to put big signs up on the entry points to your property as well, warning dangerous dog. Yeah, right. Okay. So that's a that's a and it's they're not small signs like the little beware of dog signs. It is a big sign that says warning dangerous dog. So you're the community leper. Yeah, mm. you're yeah. that guy. You're that guy. You're that guy. Yeah. Yep. Actually, that's a good point. On the signs, here's, here's a topic I see on Facebook getting discussed a little bit. Maybe you can shed some light on. People that have warning mm, signs for their one. dog, they have no requirement for that. They just have a beware of dog or whatever sign up. Is there any advantage to doing that or is it a disadvantage? Legally. Because you know the old story. Under litigation, I could see where, look, if you put that in your front yard and your front gate isn't locked, I reckon your and your dog has access to that front yard, I think you're very, very stupid because that doesn't exonerate you from the law, mm-hmm. okay? If you've got a dog – you because everyone has an implied right of entry from the front gate of a ha- property to the front door for lawful purposes. Right. So let's say I was going into your house um, to deliver – To spread the word of Jesus. Yeah, to spread this, to spread the word of – or whatever. I, I've been delivered mail that belongs to you. <laughs> sure. So I'm going into your property for lawful purposes. That dog comes around and chews me, you're totally liable. Yeah. And – the fact that you've got a danger, uh, beware of the dog sign on the front gate, that says that you knew about it. Mm-hmm. Guess what? I'm going to take your house for that. Yeah. Okay. So, and any other criminal charges you get as well. Yeah. Okay. So, I, I don't think it's a good idea. If you've got, if you're going to have a, well, even if you didn't have that sign, it's still not a good idea. Lock your gate. If you're going to have a dog that's got any chance whatsoever of biting somebody. Lock your gate because then it becomes a criminal offence to jump the fence, to jump the gate or the fence. Yeah, that comes under the Enclosed Lands Act. Then, what about having a sign saying "Dogs running free" rather than "Beware of dog"? Dogs running Probably, free. Yeah, that to me then would serve as a oh, don't let my dogs out. Shut the gate. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair enough. That that makes sense because mm. you see, even in my area, there's quite a lot of them. That, uh, beware of dog on heaps mm. of heaps of fences and. I mean, I know all the dogs. None of them are. None yeah. of them are a threat yeah. to anyone. I, I think it's actually irresponsible of the law to try and go after a person who's got a problem dog to say that you can't have a beware of dog sign on the front of your gate. I think that that should be a hallmark thing for anybody who's got a potential dog that could bite you to have a sign on the on the front of you, regardless whether it would or wouldn't. 
you well, know, kind of that's where I think the law there's is, nothing, is there's broken. There's no, nothing against the law to have that there. Criminally, you've done nothing wrong by putting a be, beware of dog sign up. Yeah. But I, I'm just talking more from litigation. I know. It's, civil just, action. It's, a, it's a prosecutor's um, um, yeah. wet dream. Yeah, I think, sort of like. I think we're pretty lucky in Australia. There's not that much litigation of that type yet. Here. Yeah, well, hopefully it never comes. But well, our, like, our, our civil law is a lot different to the States. It's not as easy to sue someone here as it is in the States. But still, I, I know I wouldn't want to be in that situation. My dogs, even though I'm pretty bloody sure they wouldn't take out someone coming in the yard, they're still locked away out the back. Mm. I remember seeing in a... a Facebook group once a video of an object guard and really good on there's a famous sort of video of a, of a dog uh, guarding a suitcase that and the decoy it's, it's a good video we'll, I'll put a link to it it's worth having a watch and one of the comments on it was I wish to God I could see someone's dog doing that I'm going to run up and jam my hand in his mouth now I own your house <laughs> And that was from an American guy and the, the comments from other people around the world were, well, in some places playing stupid games still wins you stupid prizes and you ain't getting shit if, like, my dog bites you, that's your problem. So I don't think we're as bad. We're not that bad yet. You, I don't hear that too much about them, but I think it's the, the possibility certainly exists there, right? You, you don't hear so many stories here about, like, burglars breaking into people's houses and being bitten by the dog and then getting successfully suing the, the you house. Can't, you can't – you cannot profit from committing a criminal activity in New South Wales. Right. If your go. dog – if you if someone jump, jumps over your locked gate or into your backyard and they get mauled, too bad. Really? Really. Okay, the, so that's good to know. The, the problem is excessive force. That's where it comes down to a grey area. <sighs> this says nothing about it in the companion. I don't know what Victorian law, Queensland law is – it basically says the dog is allowed to – if the dog is in protecting property or the owner, basically I think civilly what they tend to look at is how excessive it was. Like if you're talking, you jump the yeah. fence and got like an arse full of teeth, mm. then they would look at you and say, well, what were you doing there? How, look, I can use re- – like law enforcement and things, I can use reasonable force. You can use reasonable force on, a, on an intruder. Yep. Dogs, how do you teach a dog reasonable force? Yeah, well, that's arguable, that's, um, isn't it? You know, the dog is going to keep going until it's told not to or... Mm. Know, yeah. Until the threat's eliminated. Like, I'd have no... If someone jumped my back fence and my dogs took them out, I'd have no problems um, defend, I'd defend that any day. One of the good things it does say in the Act too is that the dog is allowed to defend you or anybody it yeah. knows. Yeah, Basically, right, okay. Yeah. So in yeah in the end, so that is pretty reasonable protection. It, it is reasonable protection for the dog. You, you are still allowed to be def- defended by your dog in a hostile situation. So if you can, if I'm walking my dog, you come along in the street and attack me. My dog is allowed to defend me. Mm. Yeah, in New South Wales. In New South, I'm not sure what the I think. Victor- it, the I, I think in Victoria in- as well, the dog it says the dog is allowed to. I'd have to refresh my knowledge of that, but I know the recent one in in New South Wales where I consulted with a client. And it was a situation where the guy was attacked on the street. He was walking his dog. He was attacked. The guy came out with a shovel. The dog bit the guy on the shin because he was waving a shovel around at him, trying to hit him. The dog whacked him in the shin. They got into a bit of a scuffle over it. The court then said, this guy is claiming that you set the dog on to me. He came to me for me to prove that the dog had not been attack trained. So there's nothing I could do to get the dog to attack on command. Mm-hmm. So we were running around with a sleeve. I was getting the guy to yell, get him, get him, get him, attack, skitch him, any word that he could think of. We videotaped the whole thing. Dog was just running around wagging his tail. So the dog acted in a defensive mode. I believe the dog felt it was it was defending itself, mm. not defending the owner, but the situation was hostile, was out of control, there was a lot of yelling and screaming, the dog bit the guy. It was four good puncture marks on his shin. So the court basically turned around and said, well, stick it. What, what breed of dog? 
Uh, bull breed. Oh. Yeah. A bummer. Cause I was going to say, that, that, sounds, that, like, sounds like good genetics. <laughs> Get in touch and see if we can use him for stuff. He was pretty happy, uh, as I said to the guy, because he, he, when he came to me, he was quite worried about the situation. He said, what do you think is going to happen? I just said, in this situation, as long as your story is sound, I think you'll be okay. Mm. Yeah. I said, because the Companion Animal Act supports that the dog is allowed to defend you or anybody it knows. And I said, plus the dog was on lead at the time and you've got a witness. So it stood good for him in, in a legal aspect. Yeah, that's a pretty much black and white sort of a case. Then there you've got a lot of other cases. They always, that, everything that, that, is. Like I had a really bad, where I really felt sorry because I knew he was going to lose in court, where his dog was just lying, a gentleman's dog was just lying on the nature strip. Now he shouldn't have been on the nature strip, but it's just out the front of his house while he was um, cleaning his car out. And a child's run up and given the dog a big hug in the headlock and the dog is just you know, snapped at the child, incisor bite on the face. Mm-hmm. You know, now, is that provocation? Is that, you know, and yeah. that's where it starts to get, for it's me. A situation. Yeah, because I did the temperament assessment on the dog and really there was nothing wrong with the dog. But this unknown kid's just come up and given it a big hug and snapped it on the face and it was an incisor bite and then left it. Mm-hmm. To me, I wouldn't have, if that was my child, I would have been going, you idiot, why did you let your child do that? And that's what we, um, we used to do. Yeah, but the owner wanted the dogs dangerous, this, that and the other. Now, <laughs> I basically said, look, you can go to court on this, but I think you're going to lose mm. because the magistrates, all they're going to see is a child's being bitten by your yep. co- I basically said, look, they're only going to put a menacing dog order on you, 12 months' time, we'll, we'll get it revoked. Right. That was my advice. I said, I, I can just see you getting smashed in court, that's all. Yep. Um, yeah, is that which, how it went? He didn't go to court. He took my advice. Right, yeah. I, so, I said he could have and yeah. we'd defend it and I'd, I'd go up there as a professional witness for him. It's going to cost him money though. It's going to, you know, get yeah, lawyers yeah. and things. And I said at the end of it, I could still see a magistrate, magistrate not being able to see past the fact that the dog had bit a child. Yeah, which is fair enough. Yeah. A bit split on that one. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah, that, that is, that's what I was saying. Then you've got those grey ones and that is, you know, yeah. like obviously it is provocation. Yeah. It is. But can you have a dangerous thing around that a child can just – yeah, you, you know, that's an yeah. issue. Like a, a lot of people are responsible for that situation even getting to that point. A lot of people need a kick yep. in the ass. His dog shouldn't be out there, but no kid should be doing that. That's either. exactly right. Yep. And so there was, yeah, his dog. And that two and wrongs. That was the clencher there as well. Why, if his dog had been on his property, I would have said, yeah, well, let's have a go at this. But given it was just outside on the nature Did strip, he know that that could have been a potential risk with his dog with unknown children or no, anything? Look, like? I, as I said, in the. Like, a lot of people don't. It catches them unaware. Yeah, look, I don't know. Look. Probably not, but there was definitely nothing wrong with the dog mm. insofar as, you know, it, passing a temperament I, assessment. I've seen a lot of social media heat on those type of things before where you get hysterical groups, the, the dog defence group and the child defence group where they're both going at each other hammer and tong. You shouldn't have been doing this and you shouldn't have been doing that. But until you're actually in the heat of the moment, nobody knows what the actual truth of the situation is until you're right there. And that's one of the the terrifying things of people in both those situations because I'm not a parent. I know you guys are. I know that in a situation where kids were bitten by a dog, you'd be thinking, well, my child's been bitten by somebody's dog. I've got to take some sort of affirmative action against this. Whereas the dog owner will be going, oh, mate, your kid came tearing into my dog's personal space. Um, what, where's your parenting skills at? Mm, that's so right. there's two aggravations going at each other there. Who's right? Who's wrong? It's something that weighs on my mind a lot because, say, my, my two dogs are 100% safe with my kids and, and kids in general. They both love kids. And so my son 
has an unrealistic expectation that all dogs love him and are fine to be cuddled because mine legitimately do. They seek it out and want it from him. So as a result, I'm really careful around any other dogs that I don't know and because he will try and get really close to and, and just anticipates that they all love him in the same way, which is unfortunately not the case. Mm. But when he is doing the right thing and when he's not getting too close, when he, cause if he's doing the right thing and patting a dog, I've had people's dogs show signs of like being aggressive or whatever. I'm pretty clear with people like, hey, if this goes bad, it ain't going bad in my direction because I we're doing the right thing here. Like people need to know what their dog is capable of and and know those signs and remove their dog. And I stop the situation whenever it's only – I mean, I'm thinking of a specific example yeah. where the dog really was unstable and we stopped it. It was over within a second, but I thought I lucky I was doing the right thing because – Parenting is difficult at the best of times. Yeah, especially with a child that doesn't understand the concepts yeah. of right and wrong yet. Yeah, and when his own dogs seek out getting poked in the eye, basically. Like, <laughs> you know, Remy and Val with, with Rip, they, they, they love it. It's part it. of the game. It, they love it. Yeah. And Remy, especially because he's so, like, conflict-orientated, he presents his flank to be whacked by mm. Rip, and he loves it. Like, it's it's highly reinforcing for him. So he lets him whack him, and he does, like, a little victory well, no, others loop. like that. Yeah, <laughs> right. Andrew's like that. But as I say, it, it's funny, and, and in their relationship, it's fantastic. Like, they're safe as houses together, but it's given Rip an unrealistic expectation of, like, oh, big dogs that come up to me like to be whacked on the ribs and then they do a little victory dance and they come back and present the other side to be whacked Um, because he enjoys conflict and it's a game they play it scares the shit out of me it really does and so as a result and it probably should yeah I have to be really careful with him around other dogs Mm. but similarly people have a responsibility with their dogs that they should know what a dog's like around kids and Mm. and intervene before he gets there say hey my dog's no good or no good around kids don't let him come near Mm. which you know happens you see people say that all the time which is like thank you i don't get angry at it you just go yeah cool understood my dogs are good around kids and i want it to stay that way that's why i just say no (laughs) yeah and i don't want my dog having any issues with children and yeah look i'm the same my dogs have always been fine with kids but i generally just keep the two separate Mm. you know just i think uh, active management and uh, risk management needs to be applied in those sort of situations. Mm. I think people need to be smart about their choices, which people often are not, which is why they get themselves into these problems uh, from the beginning is because they're not thinking about the long-term or even the short-term effect of what could happen if their child goes rushing into another dog. It's hard in a situation where you've got like a little fellow like Rip. He's not truly cognitive yet. No. You know, he's still learning his way. His brain is starting to grow and function properly now. Like he's learning to speak. He's learning to coordinate in a far better way than what he ever could. And all of a sudden he's starting to become an identity into himself. Mm. So he still doesn't understand that going up to another dog in the street is not an appropriate thing. But you as a parent, you're in Jane's role as any other parent is to guide him and shape him yeah. and teach him, no, you can't do that, mate. Yeah. Regardless of the tantrums and the screaming and everything, you can't do it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's it. It's a, it is a parenting issue, but it is also a dog ownership issue. It is, absolutely. It's, it's, There's the burden or the onus is on both owners. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. All right. Tough conversation there. Um, <laughs> so you, when you finished up uh, with oh, – sorry, you identified while you are with council this need for these dangerous dog courses mm. and you started running those when you were you started Total Dog, when you finished up with council and you were doing your own thing? Basically, I'd done all the pilot – I know other people do safe dog handling type training. I noticed none are actually showing how to apprehend and things and that's mm-hmm. where I went more into let's – okay, because – and that's what – the core was from in the when I went to industry meetings as well. They show you what to do if a dog comes up to you, 
they weren't showing what to do if the dog actually latched on, which if you do the right thing, 99.9% of the time, the dog won't be latching on. Mm-hmm. And, you know, with the stand right, no bite, for example, that's totally correct, right up until the dog sinks their choppers into you. Yeah. Then you want to know, then you want to have plan B. So I thought, okay, let's take this one more. So other people in the industry said you can't do this for the person in the street. Professional dog handlers, fine, but not, not the person in the street. And I thought, well, what? So the person in the street gets mauled and doesn't know what to do and panics. Mm-hmm. So I started, okay, what, let's, what happens when the dog does actually latch on? What are we going to do? You've got a nasty 60-kilo um, rottweiler at large in the street. How are you going to apprehend him? Okay, so then, and that's the sort of thing I started going down. Cool. So you run those courses for councils all over New South Wales, don't yeah. Right? yeah. And, I mean, I've done one because you had, you put out that there was an opening and I came yep. in and it was excellent. Do you normally allow like rando people to turn up like me or? Generally, look, it's designed for industry. I do a lot of trainers. I do a lot of vet nurses, vets. Uh, Sydney Dog and Cat Home now send all their um, staff to me, mm-hmm. especially after they had a, quite a nasty incident uh, with Carolyn Hamilton a few a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. She'd just done the course and she was very... Well, she put a post about that, I saw yeah, somewhere, that yeah. thanking that it, it, yeah. it went as well as it possibly could have having yeah. had the training That's that she always had. good when somebody that's in hospital for two weeks after an incident like that still thanks you for the training. Yeah, right. Um, basically, she won the day because she didn't give up. Yeah. She kept on trying to restrain. And that's what I say to people, restrain and fatigue. Try and restrain the dog and fatigue them if you can do nothing else. Right. And that's what she did, basically. The dog was far too powerful for her. Or she managed to restrain the dog on the wall and fatigue it and, yeah, yeah until right. help came. And so is a theory component you show people how yep. to read a dog, that yep. sort of thing? Yeah, you go through all the normal stuff, warning signs and things and how to get out of situations because, as I said, 99% of times you can get out of there without the dog actually attacking if you do the right yeah, thing. Yeah, and that's always the goal, right? That, that is always a. the goal, yeah. And then on your course you have people who actually, they take a bite, right, from yep. your dog on a sleeve, Yep, and basically I just – so they can realise that they can actually lock a dog in, I teach them how to restrain the dog mm-hmm. and that, so they've got confidence because when I first started doing this, being the first person to really instruct this sort of thing, everyone just looked at me, rubbish, that's not going to happen. So having the purpose-trained dog that they can restrain – it used to be when Bodhi first started doing this, it used to be really good because he'd still fight – when he, he got grabbed and restrained, he'd still fight ferally. Now he knows he's screwed and just, yeah, he just waits for <laughs> He knows the game or just wait till he's let go to start fighting again. So, And it was also good because if they didn't get him fast enough, he'd counter. And obviously the dog, when a dog first bites you, it's pretty bad. You've got four puncher wounds times 250 pounds per square inch. That's bad, but if they start pulling and shaking, it's going to be a hell of a lot worse. Well, it's not only the dog pulling and shaking, it's also the person pulling, pulling back. Pulling back, yes, Where a, a lot of damage that I've seen in active dog bites mm. isn't just the dog grabbing you and shaking you, it's actually the person yeah. trying to rip their arm or hand out of the dog's mouth. If they'd done what you said, restraint and fatigue, mm. uh, you're talking about puncture marks, but because they're actively trying to tear their arm out, they're mm. tearing tendons and muscle at the same time. That's exactly right. It's a pretty nasty situation that could be... You know, I've spoken to medical doctors before about that same sort of procedure and they said if you were able to sort of ride it out a little bit, we wouldn't be talking so much damage. But because the person's, the opposition reflex is occurring, which is normal, I mean, you don't know what to do because you panic. Mm. In most situations where people do panic and especially where they're getting injured, they think the best thing to do is try and rip back. 
I how, think that how do you know unless you have training? That a lot of the time is the power of the the dog that is trained to bite is the panic that it solicits in people that. I mean, it's evolutionary, right? Like being grabbed. When the monster comes to get you and you don't rehearse it. So you could get like a BJJ expert that is agile and can move his body, but he doesn't, he's that way because he's rehearsed it 10,000 hours in the gym against a person, not against a a dog. And so when they just don't know how to move, you don't know how to counter, you don't know. What happened? What's happening? Yeah. Well, and that's it. It's Mm. that you should be terrified of that because the wolves have been coming to get us for millennia right and so kicks back that that old primal brain and you just start freaking out and flailing all over the place well pound for pound a dog is stronger and they've got four feet on the ground so their balances are a hell of a lot better so Mm -hmm. you know and they know how to bite and they know how to bite and you Mm -hmm. know they've got speed as well so yeah and that wears off like i know a guy professional decoy who Famously, I won't name him and where it went down because it upset a lot of people when it happened, but he offered the police to send their dog at him. He was wearing a comp suit, offered the police to send their dog at him. He, he explained that. This dog only works because people are terrified and they don't know what to do. If you get someone that knows what to do, you're in trouble. So the police sent the dog at him over a 100-metre courage test. He said, I bet you I can escape that dog all the way back to you and I can touch you before your dog gets to bite me. And he did easily because he knew what to do against the dog. They rely, I think, a lot on the fact that People just like, oh, I'm freaking out. There's a dog coming to get me, and they just get bitten. But when you, when it's that person that knows how to manoeuvre, mm. they can often on an off leash dog can can keep away from that dog until they get to the handler. Well, even I wouldn't want going, to put that one to the test, though. <laughs> you know, well, I'm not not outside of a concert, but it, it 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 worked in that case and changed the mm. way that that entire department. did I was going to say, I'd be looking at the training because that should be something that's addressed in training. That yeah, if the dog's yeah, exactly. being challenged and yeah. yeah. Well, I mean that in that case, wrong. It can be wrong dog, wrong training. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. I've seen a situation very similar to what you're talking about. I was present at the time where the decoy assailant was running down the field. The department sent the dog after him. won't say which department or who it was, but they sent the dog after the assailant decoy. He's running down the field. Dog's jogging by the side of him and he's turning back and looking at the guys and he's going, what's happening here? And they said, oh, you've got to lift your arm up. Yeah. (laughs) And he's going, well, what's the point? He goes, I can jog all the way home with your dog. Yeah. And they said, he said, the dog should have hit me straight in the back and knocked me on my Mm. ass. And they said, well... There's training our training issue. floor. It's, it's a training issue, yeah. yeah. There's that classic meme. But that's the sports versus law enforcement training. You know, you want the dog to take whatever they can get because you're not going to get the present in Yeah, well, it depends on the sport. Work. depends yeah. on the sport. Like when we're training PSA, the dog can take what he can get. Mm. It, there's more points for getting the targeted areas, but as long as he gets his teeth on, mm. it, it's a bite. Fast forward six, just in that story, fast forward six months, training the, uh, changing the training style, same dog, nailed the mm. decoy. Yeah, mm. it's, yeah. It was a training issue. Yeah, mm. it's 100%. There's that, there's that awesome meme where they're, it's a little cartoon. I'll post it in with this episode where it's got a guy. It's like send his dog to get the bad guy, and the dog looks at him and says, "But he's not wearing the." Thing oh on yeah, his that was that little cartoon. Yeah. He, he's yeah, he hasn't yeah. got the smelly. Yeah, but it says get him anyway, head. and he says, "But I might hurt him." <laughs> that, that's like I'm a we didn't go into this, but I'm a big um, advocate of hidden sleeves, and I think predominantly yes, you got to teach leg, leg bites, back bites, and everything else, but predominantly I like the hidden sleeve. It really, because a dog still could choose where he's going to go, high, low, and the agitator just had to feed wherever he was going. Oh, God, I had to laugh the other day. Somebody posted on the Bell Symposium, you would have seen it, that guy who's civilly agitating that bull breed. 
And he said, oh, and he drops asleep. He, the dog, oh, yeah, yeah, the, the dog the, chases him. I, he did like, exactly I couldn't what he believe. Have done. I could not believe the guy dropped the sleeve. The dog did exactly. Yeah, he, tra- he he's training the dog to be civil. You know, like he's sitting there agitating the dog. The dog's giving him everything. He runs off. The dog comes in, nails the sleeve, slips the sleeve, and the dog goes him. Yeah. I'm thinking, dude, seriously, the dog should be rewarded. Good boy. Do you know what it reminds me of? Is that movie The Other Guys where The Rock and Samuel L. Jackson jump off that building? <laughs> like it's just like I just got caught up in my own awesome and forgot. Got that life has com- like consequences. I wasn't there for the time, but I remember colleagues of mine. They had a decoy there that was doing some training, and he had a sleeve on his left arm, and he got so caught up in it that he presented his right arm with no sleeve on it. The dog well, took it. Well, that's something I I think about in the work you do. That when people, it's the panic, right? They freak out, and so that's why there must have been a lot of work with your dog Bodie or two. Make sure he wouldn't bite if that happened. That's uh, that's the thing. The dog you had to have a real like because people do stupid things, and you know I had to make sure he was very very safe. And yeah, I had one person only a, oh, I think it was only two or three courses before Christmas. Grab instead of grabbing under and grabbing his collar and hair, which I said he's fine, he's fine grabbing hair, skin, whatever. They've actually grabbed his lower jaw. And I'm just, you know, just one readjustment on the bite and he's lost his fingers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, luckily, yeah, and he called off straight away and, yeah. Yeah. That's the sort of, you know, dogs that, how many dogs are going to tolerate that? And, and, and yeah. But it's the panic of, like, you're literally you're sending a dog to bite someone. It's mm. their first time. It's meant to be the experience that you get. Mm. You have no idea what they're going to do. Yeah, that's exactly just, that, that's just why stepping, you, Just stepping back in time in this conversation. Interesting thing you were talking about before, where if you freeze, the dog won't bite you. The old advice, yeah, oh, was, the old advice, yeah, stand right, yeah. no bite, stand right, no, no bite, mm. like a tree uh, or whatever. Have yeah. you ever seen that video clip on YouTube where the guy's talking about a brown snake wiggling across the road, and the guy's in the video and he goes, "If you just stand still, they won't bite you." And the dog's <laughs> come straight up his leg and bitten him. <laughs> have you seen it? No, uh, I've got to try and find that and put that on the clip as well because I've seen situations exactly mm. that same advice. When you were saying that before, I, I was mentally imaging that mm. video because I've seen the same sort of thing occur in dogs before where people mm. have said, if you stand still, the dog won't bite you. Mm. Well, that may be the case. Sometimes. Sometimes. 80% <laughs> of that time, that may be the case. But mm. 20% of the time, that dog will take a sniff mm. of you and think, yeah, I'll bite you. Or they'll stop. But as soon as you start again, they're going to start. Yeah. And so what do you do? It's sort of like, yeah. And if it is a trained dog, then mm. you're really just hoping that there's a flaw in the training program, mm. right? That's really mm. what you're hoping for. You're like, oh, well, hopefully this dog goes into a park and hold but, yeah. and, and outweights it. Or if it's a, like a street dog, you're hoping that what, – what then? What are you trying to solicit in the dog's brain then to make him not bite? You remove the threat or like well, remove look, the prey? One thing I've always said is – the calmer you can remain in a situation, the better. I reckon I've gotten out of a lot of situations because I haven't panicked. Mm-hmm. And I know you can't st- instill that in novices because they're going to panic. But you can only just, you know, in the history of the world, nothing has ever been achieved by panicking. Mm-hmm. And that is the mindset of the handler means so much when you're dealing with dogs. I think if you remain calm, I think I've told Glenn about this one. I might have even told you with the solicitor with his two nasty or barrister with his two nasty pit bulls I had to seize from his house. No. <laughs> I had to seize a couple of nasty pit bulls. Um, he played me like – this guy really played me bad. You know, when I went – I rang him up and I said, I'm so you haven't complied with your dangerous dog orders. I'm Merry Christmas. I'm coming to seize your dogs. Mm-hmm. Um, he brought him in the house. So I couldn't – I could take them from anywhere except the dwelling. Right. So I've had to go get a warrant. I've gone to the cop shop and they've gone to the courts and got a warrant for me. And I've had a dozen cops turn up to watch me take, get these dogs. <laughs> and I'm thinking the dogs are in the um, house still. I didn't, but I didn't tell him I was coming this time. But I just assumed. So I've just got – I put a hidden sleeve on. I just – you know, it's overtly. But, and I've had my baton um, in my 
pouch. I honestly believe their dogs weren't there. The rangers wouldn't come in with me. They said, that's your job description to get them. The police were waiting <laughs> and I'm sort of thinking, please don't shoot if the dogs do get me. <laughs> and I've walked in, I've, well, I've rattled the gate, you know, waited to see if there was any dogs in the yard, waited a good 30 seconds, nothing. Opened the gate, shut the gate behind me, two dogs come running around the corner. I've gone, oh, shit. And all I've done is I've expanded the baton, I've stood my ground and I've presented the sleeve. Oh, yeah, I'm ready to feed the sleeve to the first dog. I was going to take the first one out yep. with the strike across the back of the occipital ridge and I, the second one was probably going to get me and I was going to take that out when it got me. These dogs had already attacked a couple of people, so they definitely did bite. Yeah, yeah. I think the fact, though, they stopped about two or three metres from me and went back around the side. I think the fact that I didn't panic was the only reason I didn't get bitten or yeah. I didn't have conflict there. So that, that is, a, I think, a big situation where I remained calm. But I was able to remain calm as well because I thought at worst I'm getting one dog biting me at worst. Well, the other dog would probably take the lead from the first dog anyway. Yeah. Like if one dog Hopefully. acted, then the other dog would, you know, that pack mentality would kick in with the dog thought, well, he's on you, I've got to mm. jump in this skirmish as well. Maybe some dogs will just jump around the back barking, but often mm. in those situations I know – dogs that you would never classify them as dangerous or even predict them for being a biting dog. Mm. But because there has been a situation where one dog has bitten, the other dog has thought, this is new to me, and it's like an experimental phase for the dog. Mm. And the, the person has said, I would have said that dog definitely, but no way in hell would I have ever imagined that the other dog would have ever have done it. It's never mm. shown any sign of it. But just because of that arousal situation... You've got, yeah. to, you've got to bite. Yeah, they just get caught up in it. They get caught mm. up in it. Yeah. Yeah. Human beings do it too. Uh, silly young boys going out with their mates. Usually, you know, they're academic, they're thoughtful, they're caring, they're empathetic. Their mates are doing something, they're getting caught up in a situation, it's highly arousing. All of a sudden... All bets are off. All mm. bets are off. Yeah. Here, hold my beer. <laughs> <laughs> but I think in that, in that case with those dogs as well, like say, if, you know, you're getting into a lot of genetic talk, but... They're probably thug sort of mentality dogs that would happily bite a runner, but if they get confronted, they're they're, yeah, uh, they're not as strong as they were yeah. for someone running away, right? Yeah, that that had look that had a cup that and that's why the danger that had actually because before I went to council, there's a few minor incidents. There were a couple of minor incidents which progressively got worse to where yeah. the last one where someone um, got really really badly bitten. Yeah, but so. they probably never had anyone stand their ground before, and, they and that's the thing. Around. And uh, yeah, and I think that's the only reason I didn't have conflict is because I didn't panic and I stood my ground. Yeah, mm. interesting. Mm. Mm. So at the moment, you oh, you sold the premises of Total Dog, I, right? Yeah, I kept Total Dog as just for the training and yeah. Yeah, so that's someone else's running a similar thing out of the, yeah. the premises. Uh, yeah, no training there, just daycare and yeah. dog wash and grooming. But you kept the name and that's yes. that's your business now. Yes. yeah. Cool. So, yeah. And it, so that's able to me to expand more because I, I was very confined to the Northern Beaches before. Now yeah. I'm servicing the whole state and yeah. and establishing myself up the coast now, hopefully. <laughs> Nice. You just bought a holiday house, right? Yeah, yeah. So I'm still trying to get more work up the coast now. There's <laughs> <laughs> in phase into semi-retirement up That's there. the one. <laughs> I like it. Very good. All right. So if people want to get in contact with you, they can do that to get a dog trained or if they have issues with counsel and they need advice, you can and do regularly act as an expert witness, that sort of thing. Oh, definitely. Look, people get themselves into trouble because they make statements without getting any advice whatsoever, mm-hmm. and they basically put themselves in it. Things they could have got off, they had to just, you know, and I know people don't know or they think they've got to pay for a solicitor that's going to cost them, you know, hundreds or thousands of dollars. They don't know that there is advice out there. So, yeah, I would recommend if you, the first thing before you even talk to counsel is get 
advice from an expert before you give a statement. I'm not saying lie, never lie, because if you get caught in a lie, you're screwed. Yeah. But get advice. Get advice. Yeah. And I suppose people are thinking, do I talk to someone who knows dogs or do I talk to someone that knows law? And you're the guy that knows both. Yeah. yeah. That's it. And they can get in contact with you just for normal pet dog obedience, you train, that sort of thing. Yeah, look, I don't do a lot of um, – Pet dog obedience, but I do do it. Um, I do more aggression issues, but yeah. Sure. Okay. So that's where that's where you focus on is aggression. Yeah, aggression and behaviour issues generally. I think there's a lot of one thing that you know. Um, doing pet dog training for basic obedience, there's a lot of people doing that. So, yeah, it's a it's a uh, pretty saturated market. Yeah, it's a, that, that can do it really really well. Yeah, as well. that's that's exactly right. And a lot of people, you can go to the dog club and pay four bucks a session or something and get your basic obedience. So, yeah, yeah I, I don't really. Oh, as I said, I will do it if someone asks me, but I do more the problem behavior. solving. Yeah. Yeah, cool. Mm. All right. Well, Andrew Clark, thank you very much for coming in. It's been a pleasure. I've learned thank- quite a few things. Yeah, it's been fantastic, mate. Mm, thanks. And that's it for another thank episode. You, yeah. Thank you, Glenn. Oh. Thank you, Pat. <laughs> thank you're, you. You're very welcome, Andrew Clark. <laughs> you're welcome back anytime. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> if if people say they like the episode. <laughs> <laughs> that's it for another episode of the Canine Paradigm. As always, if you want to get in contact with us, you can do that via Facebook. Send us a message. Uh, let us know what you think. We'll have an a album up relating to this episode and we'll have some photos of Andrew and anything that we've talked about through this we'll remember and we'll put those links up that we said. And again, if you like what you're hearing, please jump onto iTunes or whatever service you're downloading and listening to us through and give us a rating if you can. Doing that really helps us get in touch with people that we can't just harass on Facebook. And even spread the word too. Like if you do enjoy the show and there are other dog industry people out there who you think would benefit or would get some entertainment out of it, please pass it along. Exactly. So that's it for another week. Cue the music.